This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our next guest, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, is a foodie. But you might not know that if you simply focus on his remarkable biography. Raised on the south side of Chicago in tough circumstances, a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Law School, a senior member of the U.S. Justice Department, and a corporate career, all before becoming the Bay State's first African-American governor twice. And just last year, a run for the U.S. presidency. If there's a testament to how talking about food and food itself is the great leveler, the great icebreaker, our conversation with Deval Patrick is it. Let's have a listen. So I wanted to ask you, since I had the pleasure to come to your house once and you made me one of the greatest omelets I will ever have, and (laughs) I didn't have a chance then to find out where it all began. How did you become so attuned to food? Where did you learn to cook? What what was it like in the household you grew up in? Um, Yeah. Take me back to Chicago. Yeah, exactly. To the South side. Um, My, I lived there, as you know, Louisa, with my, with my grandparents and my mother and sister and various other relatives who came and went in our, in our grandparents' two bedroom tenement. And my mother was a terrible cook. I mean, I don't think I knew peas were green until I was a teenager, you know, out of the house. For her, it was just fuel. She had so much else going on in her life and in our lives, and she was dealing with so much stress, much of that, the stresses of being poor. My grandmother took over at holidays, and that's when we had a sense of plenty. You know, that they would save and they would take out the nice dishes and the nice flatware and and the whole family came over and everybody brought things and the table was groaning under all this plenty. And I think the sense of food associated with welcome and hospitality and gratitude has been with me for a long time before I appreciated what went into growing it and what went into cooking it. When I got to high school, a boarding school in Milton called Milton Academy in Massachusetts, I had a, an English teacher who was an incredibly important part of my life, really, um, beyond being an English teacher. And I was new and from a very different place. And he loved food. He also loved wine. And he was about as hospitable a person as I think I've ever met. And by hospitality, Louisa, I'm not just talking about the business of opening your door, but the business of opening your heart, the way that the invitation and the welcome affects 
people and the way food enables conversation for you to get below the surface. And he was a great cook. I think that's really where the cooking came in alongside the appreciation of sharing a meal with people. And he would invite you to his house and... Invite me or not, I'd just show up. There was always something to eat or to cook together. He and his family had a house on the Cape. And the first school break when everybody was going off to their second homes and ski chalets and all that stuff, and I was looking at the prospect of being stuck in the dorm, he invited me to come and join his family down in uh, South Orleans. And I mean, it was magical. And we spent a lot of the weekend cooking together. Do you remember any of the things that you learned to cook? Funny you mentioned earlier the omelet because he taught me how to make a rolled omelet, which I, I think I made for you. And uh, in fact, I'd never heard of an omelet until I got to Milton Academy. And they served them every once in a while in the cafeteria, but they were these incredibly sad sort of flat things with old vegetables in them or yellow cheese or what have you. And he made these marvelous plain omelets often, the simplest thing, right? Just eggs. But they were quick and they were light and they were marvelous. And sometimes we'd have them at breakfast and sometimes we'd have them with a salad. We didn't do much fish when I was growing up. Most of my experience with fish was um, things that were breaded and frozen and usually cut in rectangles, <laughs> one form or another. I remember we stopped at a fish market on the way to his house, you know, once we were on the other side of the bridge and all that, and, and we got sole. And we got scallops. It was the first time I remember having either of them. And you could still taste the sea. You know, you could taste the salt water. And there was no scent, which was the, no smell, no odor from the fish, which is the other thing I learned is an indication of just how fresh it was. There were always these um, lessons, very kind of matter of fact, about the food we were eating and, and where it came from and how you thought about freshness and, and what have you. So I, I remember some of those things. Sure. <laughs> and bit by bit, you tuned up your palate. And I did. I mean, I, I, you know, we had a, someone in our class started a, uh, like a gourmet club and, uh, and all the students in it had responsibilities for cooking different dishes. And then, you know, you start to meet people who are from different backgrounds, people who lived in Europe or who grew up in Latin America, who shared their cuisine. I met Jewish kids and families for the first time, and I went home um, for Jewish holidays, and, and I tried brisket. The way food helps define us, frankly, the magic of being in a place like the United States where you have access to all kinds of cuisine, that wasn't always true in all places. And it certainly wasn't true in Boston, um, very broadly back then in the seventies, but it's very true now. And the way it introduces you to different places, different parts of the world and different people and cultures, it's a marvelous, a marvelous thing. Also, I really love to eat. So, you know, that helps. <laughs> when did you find time to perfect your, your skills? I know your career, You've been a busy boy. Yes, I have been. <laughs> I've been busy, but I, and I'm not sure I've perfected anything. I like to be in the kitchen. I like cooking for other people. I like cooking for myself as well, but there's nothing quite like cooking for other people. And I have, I think, come to a place where, though I love all sorts of food, including very fancy food, I tend not to like to have the food be the center of the event. 
I like to have the food be the bridge, the enabler of the event. I want it to be good. I want it to be memorable, but not so much that you have to pause conversation for too long and just admire the foam. <laughs> you know, everybody seems to be doing foam now. I want it to be fun and accessible, um, but not the center of the conversation. I'm going to get back to baking, though. Did you do baking during the pandemic? Or you were busy running for president, so. No, <laughs> what I was going to say is that I baked in law school and I baked a bunch of bricks and doorstops before I had a pretty reliable honey hole wheat bread that I made weekly. And it, again, just a great way to slow down and relax. I haven't kept up with baking. I mean, I cook a little of everything, but I describe the food I especially enjoy cooking as sort of bistro food, right? It's sort of very simple more or less quick, although I do like slow things that, like a seven-hour lamb that you put in a Dutch oven and with some wonderful goodness and leave for long periods of time. My emphasis these days is on flavor and freshness. So we're growing vegetables out here in the Berkshires. We have plum, pear, and peach trees. I'm a beekeeper now, so the honey from our bees I use in various recipes, which is a lot of fun. Takes me back to what it must have been like for you as a child at your grandmother's table. Just everybody sharing, not somebody mm -hmm. whipping a phone or perfecting right. their meringues. Or... Right. First of all, I think the sense of plenty I have almost always felt in settings like the one I described and, and that you have described, even if there wasn't a whole lot of food on the table, there was something just about the sharing of it that was reassuring and being able to share it, not just having it shared with me, but being the one who was hosting or bringing a dish is very meaningful to me. It's a kind of a paying it back, if not in direct terms, more paying back the lesson of generosity and, and of sharing. That's incredible. I think there's an incredibly soulful connection if you're the one who is bringing people to your table. Mm -hmm. Did you teach your kids to cook? Are they cooks? They are fabulous cooks. Our youngest daughter, in fact, when leaving high school, applied to and was admitted to the Culinary Institute of America and thought hard about going. She also applied to two big urban universities. And I mean, she was all over the place. And we said, you know, it's not clear you really know what you want to do. So she decided to take a year off and kind of uh, regroup. And she did, and then ultimately went to Smith. But she's a very, very capable cook, as is our older daughter. And both of them were the sort of kids who made all the baby food for their kids and pay a lot of attention to nutrition because they can. Mm -hmm. And and they also recognize that even that in our society is an incredible blessing and advantage because there's so many people who can't. We'll be back in a minute to ask Deval Patrick how his food awareness played out during his time as governor. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. 
Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And we are back with Deval Patrick. You are somebody with a strong social conscience, obviously. And that this whole idea of why it is that with all this plenty in America, we have hungered America. What can we do about that? What would have been your prescription? We did a lot of work when I was in office around local agriculture. The notion that farm to table should be something that's just available to the hip in Western Massachusetts and not available to everybody has always struck me as a little nuts. I'm proud of the fact that we had an increase in urban farming while I was in office, and we are the only state, I think the only state, that had an increase in the number of small farms when I was in office. And there were a variety of incentives around that, and to help make the economics work, but also to address some of the issues around food equity, we started to move more of what was grown locally into local schools. And indeed, a number of uh, schools, you know, we have a relatively short growing season here in Massachusetts, but a number of schools had uh, on-site gardens of their own. It's marvelous for kids to get 
involved in this early and to understand where their food comes from. No one has done more around hunger-related poverty in Massachusetts than Jim McGovern, uh, Congressman McGovern, who's been a champion. When I was growing up and we were on it, we called it the food stamp program. And that is a part of it. And I think, frankly, the ability to use an EBT card at farmer's markets, enormously important. Now, there are not enough farmer's markets in the hood. There are relatively few grocery stores with fresh vegetables in the hood. And I say relatively because, you know, you go out to Newton. How many Whole Foods are there now in Newton? (laughs) I don't mean to pick on Newton, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. Is it Tropical Foods now in Roxbury, which is... um, just got a marvelous um, fresh fruit and vegetable section. And we were a part of helping them scale. And there are other, there's some marvelous solutions, but the issue is how to get them to scale and how to enable people in the community to rely on those sources. There was a guy I met who was retrofitting school buses. The fresh yes. truck. Marvelous. He's, it's absolutely marvelous. He's the um, best. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrific concept and it is yeah. scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, and should be scalable. And he's got, as you know, he's got corners where folks now know to depend on him on Tuesday afternoon, and he will not let them down. And when you consider, as he has and others have, how much is thrown out by the big chains because it's not perfect or it hasn't sold fast enough, that can be repurposed. It's perfectly good. It's not just good, it's great. And considering the alternative in many places, It's just a wonderful resource. And we should be thinking system-wide that way, it seems to me. It's come a long way, though. It's come a long way. And you were really kind of the tip of the sphere of all of that. And so I thank you for that. But I look at the things that have happened in Massachusetts and elsewhere about school lunch and making school lunch fresh and affordable and free in most cases. Mm -hmm. I think back to a session I did at the Museum of Science a bunch of years ago where I brought in a chef, a local Mm -hmm. chef, Tony Moss, and Mm -hmm. I brought in a physicist from Harvard, and Tony made uh, pasta. He had a bowl of water, flour, and an egg, and he made pasta while the physicist wrote the phase transformation equations on the whiteboard. Mm -hmm. And all these kids, and they were high school kids from Boston, Mm -hmm. they were watching this, and they they couldn't believe it, that those C's and those O's and those 2's had anything to do with spaghetti they right. just and they're watching him and they said where's the trick right and he said it's not a trick that's yeah. all there is he, and the one of them said aha but you can't make the plastic bag <laughs> <laughs> turns out you, you don't need that the plastic bag. right but right. it had never occurred to them yeah. that food came from all of these basic building blocks right you know not that i think that People have to make handmade pasta all the time or spend nine hours making couscous. I don't, you know, they want to do that. That's just fine. Mm. But that whole education, that it does start in the farm or the ocean or the air, and it gets to your table. And Mm -hmm. that you can enter that system at any point in that arc. There are ways, Louisa, just to build on your point, what is sometimes called or what was once called peasant food. You know, the things that poor people ate, like osobuco in Italy. Or you know, I think of some of these marvelous dishes from the South that black people ate that were flavored with the throat, you know, greens and so forth. They were flavored with 
the bits and, uh, and ends of pork that weren't served at the big house that are now black eyed peas and bean dishes and, and so forth that were cheap then, osobuko not so much so, but were they were then cheap that were simple to make, that were made with second or third cuts to the extent there was protein at all and cooked a long time that are now sought after delicacies. If you think back to the origins of some of these dishes and the connection that you have, that I have to the, I mean, there are traditions I'm sure in in your own past of dishes like that. They were dishes that people survived on that have now become real delicacies, if you will. And I think when you understand that connection, you start to appreciate food in a very different way, a very mean, much more, for me, even more meaningful um, way. The whole slow cooking movement, I think that's the way it was described a few years ago. So much of it has roots of this kind. And I think that's incredibly exciting. And it's another way into understanding the ways in which food is a part of welcome. It's a part of learning. It's a part of opening not just your mouth, but your heart. My mother probably rivaled your mother in the terrible cooking department. Um, (laughs) I mean, I always say that it took me until I was about 20 to realize that lamb was not great. I had no idea. But our whole generation, which has sort of made food special, sometimes a little too precious for my taste, Mm. honestly. Mm -hmm. But it's just been incredible to watch it happen and to have people appreciate it. And then people like yourself, who not only appreciate it because it's wonderful and it's good, but also see it in the social or cultural context. That's a beautiful thing. I remember when the first time I traveled overseas was after college, and I lived in Sudan for most of a year. And I was on a fellowship, and the requirement was that you spend a year in a distinctly non-Western culture. And they gave you enough money to get there and to get home, and that was it. So that you didn't—you weren't tempted to kind of move into the local intercontinental hotel and wait it out. You know? And I'd written to everybody I knew who knew somebody in Africa, because I wanted to go to Africa. And I got one response from this one guy on a UN project in Khartoum. And he said, come on, we'll figure it out when you get here. So I filled up a backpack and I set off and I taught myself the greetings and the numbers in Arabic on the flight from Athens to Cairo. And then I hitchhiked from Cairo after you know a while in, in Cairo. I hitchhiked from Cairo to Khartoum, which is about 1,200 miles over all kinds of conveyances. And I found the office of the guy I'd been writing to for many months and learned when I got there that he had left the week before for two years in Long Beach, California, and said nothing to his office about my coming or what I was going to do. And eventually, I talked my way onto the project, and to get rid of me, they sent me to Darfur, which was another 600 miles across the desert. No roads, no rail service, no flight. You had to get food from the marketplace enough for five days and find space on top of a cargo truck that just set off these on these tracks through the sand. And once I got out there and I was, I ended up traveling alongside uh, a Sudanese guy my age who um, had also just graduated from university. He spoke as much English as I then did Arabic. And we made our way together as friends and as colleagues over meals. And there was something about the 
confidence and comfort he felt when I sat down and ate what he ate from the the fool, which is a bean dish, um, and with cheese or camel meat or something like that, if it was dressed up, and what we would call pita, sometimes with the ants still in it, you know, from the flour, uh, and what have you. Exactly. Uh, when when uh, when when we'd sit down and eat together without my sort of pushing it around and being um, put off by it, but instead just being as hungry as he and relishing it as much as he and appreciating as we went along uh, whose fool, which shop had the better fool and which, uh, which did, it was a part of our finding our way to each other. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's just that kind of bond that happens. And I found that everywhere I've ever been as a backpacking recent college grad or as a as a dad traveling with my wife and kids or as a business person or or as as governor everywhere we went around the world when we sit down with people and they show their esteem or respect or love through that meal when you appreciate that a whole lot of other things are made possible that's one hell of a story that is just great. You know, I, I spent about 10 years um, as a global health reporter, but um, <laughs> the, the first place I went to was Rwanda, and then people kept sending me to Africa because I've gone to cover Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And I, at first, I couldn't understand that everywhere I went, and there'd be a big celebration because we were in town, and they'd you know, kill a cow or a goat or whatever. Everybody offered me these bottles of Fanta Orange. Yep. <laughs> and I never quite understood that until I understood, well, they, they don't do wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what they do. But right. That's and, an- and, and other things are harder to get. But, you know, you mentioned it um, really in passing, but this notion of killing the goat or killing the, in some cases, the cow, that's a big deal. And that might feed that village or that community for some period of time. But you got what they viewed as the choice cut. Um, again, the generosity expressed in that was more than material. It was, it was a generosity of spirit. You know, it's incredible to me how food brings people together. And that's what animates me. Food creates community. Mm-hmm. And it's a worldwide community that we're all part of. Deval, that's been a frustration for me that all the people who fall, have fallen in love with food are really the people, well, they're the fancy people. They're me, they're you, and they're, they're not a whole lot of people for whom it could truly change their lives. But let me tell you something that won't surprise you, but I'll say it anyway. This notion of food as community, poor people understand that too. It makes me wonder whether they also understand, because I'm, I'm not sure when we were growing up, on the south side of Chicago, with the same issues of you know living in food deserts that you see so often, whether the absence of food was another kind of message, was it was the opposite of that message. So the the fresh truck you were talking about, or what's happening with tropical foods, or some of the other, the farm to table, the farm to to cafeteria table in a school, these are all ways of emphasizing that we have a stake in each other, that we belong to each other. In that sense, I think that's not playing to 
um, an audience that doesn't get it, they get it. Should we talk about um, recipes and techniques and stuff? Have you have you discovered there? It's like there are like a half a dozen things you have to know how to do, and once you know how to do that, you can cook anything. That is what I tell people. You know how to need to know how to roast a chicken. You need, to, you need how to like there are like four or five things, and the rest of it, who cares? Right. What are your what are I your am things? in search of the world's perfect roast chicken. I love roast chicken. I think it's the quintessential comfort food. And I have tried every kind of way. I have nailed it a couple times. I still miss Hammersley's, uh, which had some of the best. And he showed me the last day in the kitchen how to make his chicken, um, which was amazing. Although he, I once had asked Gordon if he ever got tired of making because uh, Gordon Hammersley, was like, he ever got tired of making roast chicken? He said, oh, really? Making 40 <laughs> roast chickens a day for every single day of my life? Would you think that I might get tired of that? <laughs> it never tasted that way, though, you know? <laughs> no. We went to, my wife turned 50, and we went to Paris. And I was still in office, so we went a little bit on the cheap, and we stayed in a, a little hotel up near the opera. She, she turned 50 in December and was freezing in Paris. But there was a famous little restaurant near the Tuileries Garden where the chef was American and he had gotten his first Michelin star and it was super hot, tiny place with maybe 10 tables and a set menu. And I planned ahead and was able to get a table there. And we had the most amazing meal with multiple courses and you just didn't feel full and they paired the wines and all that uh, and all that. So it just had just incredible, incredible time. And he has since come home to the United States and opened a restaurant in New York, which is getting rave reviews and maybe a couple of other places. I think of that experience as one great eating experience. I, I think of sitting in a grove beside a vineyard in South Africa when we all went there for my 50th birthday, actually. And of course, I believe all food tastes better outside. We should always eat outside. <laughs> we had a lunch there. I think we sat down maybe at one and got up at six. You just don't want to leave. You just, you kind of pick at things and you have a little bit and you have another sip and you tell another story and laugh and, and the, you, the afternoon goes along and you, somebody tells another story and you start to cry and then everybody laughs at who's crying. You hear marvelous stories. And I've had experience of driving along with your kids on the way back from school. And that's where you have the really great conversation or, or hiking with somebody or, you know, any number of settings, but there's something about being around the table, slowing down, and actually sharing that that meal that makes the conversation uniquely rich. And I've been thinking about that a lot, particularly during uh, COVID times when so many more people have been cooking and eating with their families. And good for all of us. One last question. Diane, where is she? Does she love it when you cook? Does she cook? Uh, she loves it when I cook. <laughs> <laughs> she is a very good scrubber upper um, afterwards. For her, I mean, she she does enjoy food, but um, she doesn't she doesn't quite get the same out of preparing it. 
she loves the sitting down with everybody. And, and it's one of the things, you know, <laughs> if there is ever a tension in our relationship, it's that sometimes we have these terrifically interesting small groups of people who come over and I'm in the kitchen finishing up the supper and I hear laughter peeling from out in the other room. I'm thinking something's wrong with this picture. This has been just great, Deval. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so Lisa. much. Thank you. Thank and you. we'll, Thanks we'll for keep at doing. this. I really, I believe in the power of food at every level. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do too. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. <laughs>